This episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast is brought to you by FanDuel. FanDuel, listen, fantasy sports, we like it. Football, we continue to be ambivalent about it. But if you want to play fantasy sports easily and with a lot of fun involved, it's very easy to do. FanDuel.com, click the Join Now button and enter promo code Jonah. That's J-O-N-A-H. It's fantasy football for everyday fans. New contests starting every week. No busted seasons. Something for everyone. Lots of contests to choose from starting at a buck. One dollar. You pick a contest, choose your team, watch your score real time. It is that easy. More than two and a half million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. So sign up today. Go to FanDuel.com. Click the Join Now button and use the promo code Jonah. And there you go. That's all you got to do. New users get free entry to the NFL Sunday Million with more than $1 million in cash prizes when you make your first deposit on FanDuel. It's FanDuel.com. Sign up with the promo code Jonah. FanDuel.com, promo code Jonah. Thank you to FanDuel for sponsoring the podcast. And welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast. This episode is with Rich Griffin. Rich Griffin is a legend. I'm going to just put it out there like that. A wonderful uh, human being uh, who I've gotten a chance to know a little bit um, the last couple of years when I was working on my book, Up, Up, and Away, about the Montreal Expos. Rich was the PR guy for the Expos for many years. And, uh, PR guys have the best, the best stories. And Rich has some beauties in this one. It doesn't really matter if you're an Expos fan or not. You'll get a kick out of this kind of old-timey baseball talk. Uh, some really, really fun stuff, behind-the-scenes stuff. Rich is now a columnist for the Toronto Star, does a great job there. Um, and uh, a great dude. I really, really enjoy this conversation. And I hope that you do, too. Uh, some quick programming notes. We've got CBS Sports. Lots of stuff, as always. I'm writing about the Diamondbacks this week. Uh, this might be... I'm not exactly sure when this is going to come out soon. So you'll be reading this maybe by the time you listen to this. Uh, if not, then soon afterwards. Diamondbacks are really good all of a sudden. They were not good last year. And the story of the turnaround of their pitching staff in particular is quite impressive. And uh talked to a bunch of the... Uh, head people in that organization to get a feel for how they did it, how they've been able to do it. The Diamondbacks are a big-time sleeper. I like them a lot in this year's playoffs. I understand they're going to be in a wild-card game, um, which means they could be one and done. But if they can get past probably the Rockies, but maybe the Brewers or the Cardinals, um, watch out for the Diamondbacks. They're really good. That J.D. Martinez trade was really good. They're a dangerous club. Uh, also on Friday, every Friday, you will get Carry the 10, which is my column at CBSSports.com. And uh, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I've never been treated better than by the people at CBS Sports. They're awesome. Serge, Port, EK, Jeff, everybody, everybody. Our, Igor, RJ, goes on and on and on. A great group of people, and I could not be luckier. And by the way, today is my birthday. I am from, 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 from years old. So feeling very thankful to be uh, gainfully employed. And, uh, yeah, thanks uh, for all of the good stuff. And thank you to listen. Thank you for all of you for listening. Uh, to this podcast and here you go it is the next episode with jonah carey podcast with rich griffin enjoy
ambush proclivities might be, and now we're recording because this is, we just jumped in. I said we ambush the guest. It's very rude. <laughs> uh, Rich Griffin, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. And um, your background is very interesting. Of course, you've been the longtime columnist for the Toronto Star, but then also you were the uh, longtime public relations man, public relations ace. I think that's what they say with the Montreal uh, Expos. Some do, some don't. Some do, some don't. <laughs> And my uh, wife doesn't, but that's well. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, I assume like uh, yeah, I, I get that. So there's only a lot of journey questions to ask and so forth. But one, I just wrote a story for CBS Sports about the 22 inning game, about this game that was one to nothing. The Dodgers won it. UP got ejected. All this stuff. And you and I had been meaning to chat about it. My deadline came and went, and you were busy, whatever. Uh, but you said that you have the final authority, the final story on this ridiculous game, so I want to hear it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess it was the 17th inning when it could have ended, except Bob Davidson stood at third base on a sacrifice fly. I think Larry was, Walker scored. What? So there was the Murray incident and there was the Walker incident. I think Walker was 16 and Murray was 18. Okay, 16. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, everyone was leaving the field except Bob Davidson was standing at third base. Which you do not do. Staring at the bag yeah. as if something was going on. And, of course, Lasorda and the Dodger dugout reacts, and they, the last guys don't leave the field. They appeal to play at third base, it's a, and, and he's out. It's a double play. And uh, so now it goes later in the game. Now it's in the 21st inning, uh-huh. and Buck Rogers is looking for someone to pitch, and the only guy left is Joe Hesketh. And Joe Hesketh's going, oh, I got a little, uh, <laughs> little twins here. I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can do it. How can you say I don't think I can do it when you're the last guy? Yeah. So Dennis Martinez gets his spikes, puts his spikes on. I guess he'd pitched just a couple days before, and he goes to Buck and he says, uh, "I'll pitch." And he goes out and he pitches, pitches one shutout, gives up the Dempsey home run. Mm-hmm. Game's over. The next day, that's a six-hour and fourteen-minute game. Mm-hmm. The next day, we're meeting at the airport to fly to L.A. and Joe Hesketh arrives in a cab with his luggage, and John Silverman meets him on the sidewalk and says, uh, don't bother taking your luggage out of the trunk. Mm-hmm. You're on the DL. Mm-hmm. You're not coming to the West Coast. So there was L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, Hesketh on the DL, obviously, in, or spitefully, because Buck Rogers didn't like the fact that he was not available to pitch and it's like up yours buddy you're staying home and that's what I remember plus the the fact that uh, I mentioned later on that uh, the flight was shorter than the game and nobody scored on the flight either (laughs) (laughs) because that was a thing you know yes yes back in those days Joe Heskett missed out on the beach missed out on the Pacific Beach and Malibu and all that and stuff. And he's from Lackawanna, New York. And he would, have, he would have enjoyed it. He would have enjoyed it as correct. Wow, Buck Rogers. Um, I love all that stuff. And, and, you know, even before we started talking, just figuring out. Because, I, and honestly, if you were the PR guy for the Columbus Blue Jackets or the Cincinnati Reds, I, I just think there's something very interesting about that role. I've come to befriend some PR people over the years. Some younger folks now are coming into it. It feels more buttoned down now. Maybe ever all of society is more buttoned down now than it was then. And it's not, I am going to tell you these crazy stories of the set. Not that I'm looking for anything salacious or anything. But now it feels like it's managing this, it's managing that. You know, when you're jumping into it, you're a young buck at that point when you got in the late, late 70s, right? Uh, 1973, but took over 
1977, uh, when my boss, the guy who hired me, yeah. Larry Chason, he passed away with leukemia in the middle of the 77 season. Wow. And they were looking for some older French-Canadian to take over, and they ended up with a young Anglophone taking mm-hmm. over. So that, that was a difficulty, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a long time. Yeah. And at that point, you know, if, if it's managing and just kind of making sure that everything goes smoothly and professionally, now you feel more like putting out fires then? Well, back then, I, I feel proud of the fact that uh, uh, there, were, there was a generation of PR guys before, before I came along. Yeah. It was traveling secretaries on the road doing the game notes and doing the stats every day on a... Uh, and, and the stats were always wrong, you know, because the, the traveling secretary, everybody was out late, and then you have to you have happy to get home and do it or do it early in the morning. Stats were always wrong, and I felt like I was part of the generation along with guys like Ned Coletti, yeah, who was with the Cubs, then went on to Former be a successful executive, yeah, yeah, and and there was a generation there in the late '80s and early '90s who put personality back into the job of. PR director mm. or media relations director, because before that it was just like, turn out the notes, turn out the stats, and that was it. And so when I won the Robert Official Award in 93, it was the year after Ned Coletti had won it, we took a certain pride, and it was in my acceptance speech where eight of the women from the Expo's front office came up and gave me flowers on stage. That was wonderful. Cool. <laughs> that, that was fabulous. And I gave the speech about the change in the in the job. And I think now, as you point out, it's returned to the yeah. corporate thing because uh, corporations that own teams want to be safe and they don't want personalities doing this. And, and so it was a window, and I think I was a big part of that window introducing it. How does one even get into this vocation? Was it something you thought about in school? Was it, I mean, you're a sports fan, I'm going to gather? That's the, It just... I think now you can pretty much major in something like that. I don't yeah. know that you could in the early 70s. I think I learned more from a three-minute inning than I ever learned in school. Yeah. You know? Same, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but I dropped out of Concordia University. I was at Loyola High School. Yep. Went to Concordia the Go year Stangers. that it changed. Yep. The year that it changed to... Uh, and, you know, I, I played junior varsity basketball against guys like Pat Hickey. Who's with Wait, you probably play. How old are you? I'm 63. So my dad is just turned 68. So no, but he played with Hickey and John Doerr. Yeah, John Doerr was uh, one of my heroes. I was in high school. He was in college. Uh, he was at Loyola College before it became Concordia. Yeah, um, those are my dad's teammates. Randy so. Phillips with the Gazette. Yeah, played on this Sir George Williams team. With, yeah. Uh, Pat so, like, I failed, I dropped out of school, and I got a summer job doing stats with the with the Expos because I needed the work, and I loved baseball. Yeah. And so I scored all the games in the Jerry Park press box, scored all the games on the road off radio. That's why Dave Van Horn is my favorite broadcaster ever, because he and I became friends because I would... I would ask for, like, if I missed something, I would ask to see a scorebook, but I never missed anything. I listened to every game for four years on the road before I started traveling. Wow. And uh, I came up with this uh, scoring system, which is unique to myself. And that's why when 
the, the stats geeks say you're an old school. Hey, I was supplying stats in 1973 to 1980 for Jim Fanning, John mm -hmm. McHale, for arbitration cases. I was... You were I a had, stat head. I was a geek. I was yeah, a stat absolutely. head. absolutely. And that was what set me apart in the minds of the Expo's front office is that I was willing to do this, willing to listen to every game, never missed a day. Yeah. And, you know, that work ethic plus an imagination plus a love of baseball all combined to overcome the fact that I was a college dropout. Yeah. And and made a career out of it, made two careers out of it. You sure did. Um, I want to ask you about Jerry Park because I just missed it. I was born in 74. Could have gone, I guess, if somebody had taken me as an infant <laughs> or a toddler, but I didn't get there. And for people who don't know, maybe they're you know new to the podcast or whatever. I think they probably most people know that I'm an Expos uh, homer. But Jerry Park was so weird. If you don't, you know the story. But it was a municipal park. It was like a couple bleachers where they played semi, 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 semi pro ball. And then the Major League Baseball basically said, no, they awarded the team to Montreal. That was already a shocker. And then they said, okay, you've got eight months to build a stadium. So they've got these bleachers, and they're going to turn it into 29, 30,000-seat stadium, which is going to be at least sort of adequate, or that's the goal. And then they played there. They're supposed to play for three years. They played there for eight, eight years. So how rickety was this place? Was it charming, or was it just shitty? It was, it was just it was charmingly shitty. Charmingly <laughs> shitty. I mean, basically. Like the Expos of that era, by the way. Basically. I remember we always celebrated August 14th, 1968 as the official birth yep. of the Montreal Expos because Charles Bronfman and his partners, and Charles was a late arrival, and Russ Taylor and a couple of the guys figured out that Jerry Park was a last-ditch yes. locale. And, and when Jerry Park was approved by the commissioner... Then they were able to make the payment, which was August 14th, $1 million down payment on a $10 million franchise fee. That's crazy. Yes, it's crazy. $1 million down. Even if you adjust for inflation, and, it's and still And then crazy. they're going to open on April the 8th of 69. That's so, right. So the You team, have eight months. Yeah, you got less. That's it. You have less. And so they put all these aluminum seats in, not thinking about the sun. Mm -hmm. You know, the sun is that thing that comes up in the morning and goes down around game time. Even in Canada, you still have the sun. <laughs> it comes, goes down around game time. Uh -huh. And, I mean, quirky, you had a two-week period in June, maybe late June, where Ron Fairley would not play first base mm -hmm. between 7.30 and 8.15. And why is that? And Because the sun between the bleachers and the stands would be going down and shining right in his eyes. And he had this thing called a survival instinct. And if the shortstop threw at him, and what would happen to that, Rich? Would it he, would hit him right between that's the eyes. Right. Because, uh, Tim Foley and a couple of, you know, Tim Foley's arm was pretty strong and pretty accurate, and those eyes were his target. Of course. <laughs> but there was that, and then the, just... The fact that these were aluminum seats with the sun mm -hmm. reflecting off these aluminum seats. I mean, the first baseman wasn't the only one blinded by the light. And uh, it was, you had seats facing in the wrong direction. If you're down the lines, you're facing the outfielder on your side of the field. And you got to look that way to see home plate. So there was nothing charming about it. The only charming part was uh, after games... All the media and Gene Mock and his coaches and the visiting coaches 
would come up to this private lounge under a beam on the third level of Jerry Park on the third base side, and they would serve drinks until four in the morning. <laughs> had a private bartender. It was a private Whoa. club. Gene Mock and his coaches. Gene didn't hang around very long, especially after a loss, because he was not a good loser. Yes. I mean, that was one of the things. My early years in '73 to '76, when '75, when Gene was fired, and they played a lot of doubleheaders. My job was to go down between games of the doubleheader and get the second game's lineup from Gene. And I was a kid, mm-hmm. and I was scared shitless of going into his office and saying, Mr. Mock, do you have the second game lineup when they lost? Like, he's flipping over food tables, and, <laughs> and, and he's MFing everybody, yeah. and I'm a kid. So I think that uh, that hardened me a little to the realities of, uh, of what baseball, Major League Baseball, really is. But Jerry Park, uh, you know, I would drive my Honda 125 from Montreal West, and I'd go park in the parking lot, and I'd leave... Four in the morning, on my Honda one. <laughs> yeah, and they taught me how they taught me how to love baseball, respect the game, and drink heavily. Three keys to life. I you could definitely make that argument. You mentioned Mock. You mentioned Van Horn. Van Horn's still going strong. Uh, God bless him. Who are some of the other characters that stand out for you? Maybe on the player side, uh, maybe in the administrative side, because they're just. Again, some of these are names to me, and not necessarily fully formed personalities. As a historian, as somebody who you know tries to dabble away in writing about events of the past, I don't really know. I wasn't there. Well, one of my favorite people, and you probably never heard of him at that from the Jerry Park years, was a guy named Roger Savard. Roger Savard weighed about three hundred and twenty-five pounds, and was a do-everything guy. Mm-hmm. And he was a bombardier during World War II, was a POW in Germany. So he was he was a tough guy. Yeah. And I remember he was assigned to make sure that in the 1982 All-Star Game that there was a good representation of Montreal Expos in that game. And if you recall, it was... Five of them. Five Four of them. started. And... and the, the deal was there was no online. There was no online voting. Uh-huh. Everything was in the ballpark. Uh-huh. I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> and Roger came up with a factory that had power drills. And he, he got over a million ballots and just power drilled. Come on! Power drilled through Gary Carter, Al Jim Oliver, Rains, all the... Reigns, Steve Dawson. Dawson, yeah. Rogers was, was a pitcher, yeah. But, yeah. but he deserved it. Rogers was a great game, too. Yeah. So basically, from Olympic Stadium, you could hold up these ballots and see the Jacques Cartier bridge through the Gary Carter hole because it was front to back. <laughs> <laughs> and the deal, the deal was that there was a deadline where all these ballots had to be submitted, but Roger didn't want everyone to know what was going on. So he got a cube van piled all these fixed ballots into the cube van, and he rode shotgun while uh, one of his employees drove. They drove down to New Jersey where they were counting it like 10 minutes before a deadline and said, we got all these ballots, and they pulled them out. And, they're like, and the commissioner actually was asked to make a decision on it, and stories never come out, and everybody talks about the cities that have, that have stuffed the ballots. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I always sit back and go, oh, 
<laughs> and I tell the story, but nobody listens, you know. And and the commissioner decided Montreal small market team yeah. hosting the game. To hell with it. Let let's let them have the ballot, you know. And then uh, there's all those famous photos on the field of all the starting guys together, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jim Fanning and Steve Rogers, and. It, I, every time I see one of those photos, I go, this is great. If only people knew. <laughs> Nobody wrote about this? It was never made public? Nobody wrote about it because I think it was done very well by Roger, who passed away probably in before I left uh, the Expos. It was probably mid-'80s he passed away. Yeah. It, it was one of the greatest accomplishments uh, in, the ter- in terms of, uh, well, now it, cheating like that is... When you're allowed to vote ten times online per oh, day yeah. or whatever. No, this would be the social media <laughs> oh, yeah, scandal yeah. and whatnot. Well, wait a minute. Do we have to go back and re-adjudicate the game? Has Gary Matthews been hosed? Like, should we feel remorse for the people that were left on the sidelines? <laughs> Leon Durham? Well, you could do that. <laughs> yeah. But the game is full of incidents like that. So let's just let that one go. That's incredible. Oh, my God. That's so good. Um, so you're going along over the years... And the team got good. I mean, you know, you take over full time seventy seven. That's the first year of the Big O. First of all, well, you know what? Even before we get to that, oh, we into the Big O. I have all day. Give me all before, the story. Before this is just as I'm starting out. Yeah. Uh, Larry Shaysaw was still in the hospital. I was sort of taking charge. Yeah. And this is this has become my mantra of making decisions. Uh-huh. Um, I'm there in the PR office. It's at the back of the parking lot at the time. They hadn't built real offices, so we're in the parking lot breathing in carbon monoxide all day. And uh, this is 77, 78. And there's a, somebody comes to reception, and they call me out. And it's the great Antonio. The great Antonio is an Eastern European strongman who wants to, between games of a doubleheader, wrestle a bear on the field. <laughs> they didn't milk cows on the field. Right, so yeah. It wasn't that weird, but well, still that was weird. my first great note, is that uh, we were trying to ward off PETA because they were bringing the, the farm animals down yes. in a cube van with no windows, no air. Oh, boy. And uh, Pepe Frias was the greatest pig chaser, you know, grease pig chaser. Uh-huh. But the pig died. On, no! So we were worried about PETA. So in the game notes, I wrote that... Uh, uh, that the pig pulled a hamstring. <laughs> oh my God. And that Pepe would not be chasing a pig. <laughs> At least until later. By the way, hamstring, the greatest inadvertent <laughs> pun. Possibly vertent pun of all time. Yes. And um, so the great Antonio is at the switchboard, and I've got an audience of people watching me interview this guy because he's in like a leopard skin loincloth. Yes. And he's probably late in his career. He looked like he was in his. 50s or 60s. Mm. He I wasn't an Abercrombie mumble. No, no, no. Sure, yeah. The great Antonio, strong man, Eastern yes. European. He was on the wrestling circuit at one point. And he wants to wrestle a bear between games of a doubleheader. And I'm just 23 years old, uh-huh. and I'm going, I don't think this is a good idea. <laughs> so the question that became my mantra is, what if you lose? <laughs> <laughs> he had no answer except that he drugged the bear heavily. He said, "Wow!" But but that's whenever I come up to a question that you really don't want to go in one direction, I think of what if you lose, <laughs> and that's my that's my great Antonio incident. That's shaped my career as a PR. Guy. This isn't that long ago, you know. To think of this era. 
you know, we think of who are the big characters in Major, like Yasiel Puig is a character. Yasiel Puig is absolutely a character. But he's a character because he poses on Instagram doing funny stuff. I mean, these people, like, the, the cow milking thing. Woody Fryman. Woody yeah, Woody said. Fryman, Larry Parrish, and, but Fryman was unbeatable. It just wasn't that long ago. You'd never have cows on the field. Although, did any other team do that? Maybe this is, maybe I'm thinking oh, of it wrong. Maybe it's not yeah, a. No, no, it's, it wasn't strictly. Wasn't strictly Montreal. Montreal. Okay. No, this was an era of kids coming up to play baseball off the farm, so it was a natural. Yeah. But uh, we made a bigger deal out of it. <laughs> well, because Woody was so good yeah, at it. Yeah, Woody was, Woody was a, a farm. He owned cows. Yeah. So. I just, that, that kind of stuff just amazes me. So if you're vetting a promote, okay, so let's say the cows are more frequent, bears are less frequent. If you're, were you the one in charge of vetting that kind of stuff? Or that'd be like the promotion? But that that was promotion department. Yeah. But, uh, this guy specifically, uh, I'm not sure if he asked for me, but he asked for the PR guys. Wow. So that was, that was that. Friends, we've got a terrific, terrific sponsor on today's podcast, and that is Me Undies. They are outstanding, unbelievably comfortable, terrific. I love them. Uh, they have sent me pairs, and I can report back. They're the best underwear I have ever worn. Fantastic. It's uh, made from a sustainably sourced, naturally soft fabric, three times softer than cotton, which seems mathematically impossible, but true. It's the ultimate feel-good undies. 100% satisfaction guarantee. They guarantee that you will love them or your money back. And right now, MeUndies has an exclusive offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get 20% off your first pair plus free shipping. MeUndies is so sure you will love your underwear. They even offer the 100% satisfaction guarantee to go along with it. So it's a no-brainer to try. 20% off, free shipping, 100% satisfaction guarantee. What are you waiting for? Here is how you do it. To get 20% off, free shipping, and 100% satisfaction guarantee of the best, softest underwear you will ever own, go to MeUndies.com. That's M-E-U-N-D-I-E-S.com slash J-K-P, as in Jonah Carey Podcast. That's MeUndies.com slash J-K-P. It's a limited time offer, so you better get on this. The most comfortable underwear of your life. MeUndies.com slash J-K-P. Oh, there's another one. I don't want to interrupt, but you were asking. No, no, there is no interrupt. This is what the podcast is about. It's literally about telling stories. But I think that, uh, you know, you talked about the great years that the Expos had. And, yeah. And, and, you know, as young as youngsters, I joined the, the Expos in 73, and, and you, you sort of glamorize and those 69 to 73 teams were not very good. <laughs> Although 73, they were oddly contending. Yeah, they, it was they the worst division ever. Team, worst yeah. division ever. But uh, now you're talking, you're getting into Jerry Park, you're getting into Dick Williams coming on yeah. board. Young and, talents getting yeah, developed on the farm. Young talent, yeah. it was phase two, Mel Lydia was phase so two. Yeah. And, and these guys started to be good. Mm-hmm. And so we got to, we get to, uh, that whole decade, which was spoiled by the Bill Verdon years, because Bill Verdon was the, the worst, grumpiest old yes. man I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. But the, the rookie years of Larry Walker, Marquis Grissom, yep. Delano DeShields, and that was tremendous. That was uh, with, with Dennis Martinez. That was a great young pitching Late staff 80s, early 90s, led yeah. by Dennis Martinez. So mm-hmm. it's now nineteen ninety. And it's April or early May, and Larry Walker's a platoon outfielder. Mm-hmm. So now we, uh, Mark Gardner and Larry Walker hung out a lot. 
and I hung out with them. You know, that was back in the days when players would go, oh, there's Rich. Now they go, oh, there's Rich. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? You change sides, and all of a sudden you change sides. Which, by the way, how and why? I mean, is that just the professionalism thing? That's just the professional yeah. aspect okay. of it, yeah. I'm still the same guy. Right. You know, I, I haven't grown up, and... and I hope you don't. None yeah. of us should. So now... Lindsay. We're in Atlanta, and uh, we're in Atlanta in April or May. First road trip. Larry Walker, strictly a platoon outfielder at this time. Bad knees. He's he's only facing, yeah. yeah, he had that one year yeah. off, and he said, "I kept, I kept being quoted as saying, oh, Larry's doing fine. He's he's recovering.'" And Larry would go, "Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> he's talking about me. I've never met him." So anyway, we had met by this time. Mm-hmm. We're in Atlanta. We're in Buckhead. There's a bar. All I remember is there's a bar with a huge tree growing out of the middle of the bar. Okay. And it's outdoors, obviously. And we're there. And I, and I go, Walk, you think we should go? Gardner's not pitching the next day. Mm-hmm. And Walk goes, Ah, no, there's a left-hander pitching. I, I'm not playing. Let's stay. Yeah. So we stayed till like 4 in the morning. So we stayed so late that I climbed the tree. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, That's and some athleticism. I, now we get, oh, it was a gnarly tree. It had lots of gnarly. Uh-huh. <laughs> so now we get to the ballpark, the old uh, Fulton County Stadium. A hole. Worse than the big O. So uh, I'm looking at the lineup, and Walker's hitting sixth. <laughs> and it's Steve Avery pitching. Oh, who was really good and when he came he, up. And, and I go into the training room, and Walker's on the training <laughs> table with a towel over his head. I go, Walk, you see the lineup? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and like... Second at bat, he hits a three-run bomb to left center field. Yeah. And after the game, I'm going, he's back on the training table after the game. I go, well, maybe we should do this every day. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, I don't think so. <laughs> and, and Walker's another guy, to me, that never grew up. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah. He went to Colorado, and there's a story. I mean, I knew enough stories about him mm-hmm. that when I saw that he had gone been going fishing at 5 in the morning, and he fell down the hill into the lake and hurt his ankle. I'm going, yeah, right. Because this fishing. is a guy, this uh-huh. is a guy that really never grew up. But imagine how good he would have been and the numbers he would have put up if there hadn't been work stoppages, if, uh, if he had taken it more seriously. Yeah. And he took it seriously enough where he was, Larry Walker was the best instinctive defensive outfielder yep. that I've ever seen. Except when he handed the ball to that kid at Dodger Stadium, 92, I think. But that was because management in all teams and management with the Expos had said, okay, guys, we're having labor issues. You know, we got a pending strike in Mm -hmm. a couple of years. We got this and that. We want you to be more fan friendly, sign more autographs and whatever. So he catches the ball, fan friendly, hands it to the kid. And then goes to get it and throws a guy out at the plate. <laughs> Unfortunately, the damage was done. Yes, that was game of the week, too. And the Expos were never on the game. It was the ESPN game of the week at that time. I think it was the Dodgers were on the game of the week. Do- uh, well, but the Expos, yeah, like, yeah. they were playing. Yeah. That was the thing. That was shocking. Well, and Walker, and this, again, this is all secondhand. I was not old enough, whatever. But, like, in the course of my reporting, I talked to other guys in that era, the Shields and all these guys. Most instinctive outfielder, they said best base runner. And his background was, he played hockey. You know, he's a hockey player from BC, and he likes baseball, but he just, you know, there's guys you hear about these gym rats, these guys are just, they're obsessed with it or whatever, and I mean this as a compliment and not an insult, 
he wasn't that guy because he didn't feel like it should be an all-consuming part of his life. That was one thing that he did, and he was also this guy, and he had a personality and whatever. And I thought how admirable that is. So I sort of get it. Like, yeah, if he did more Stairmaster or bench presses or whatever, maybe. But that was what made Walker Walker. He was supernaturally talented, and he didn't let baseball be everything about his life. Yeah, he would not have gone towards baseball if he hadn't been cut as a goaltender. He, he wanted to be a hockey right. player, but he's cut as a goaltender. Um, he's seen at a tryout camp by one of the, uh, the Expo scouts. And at the time, there was no draft for Canadian kids. So they just signed him. And, for like and 10 cents. He's the re- Yeah, he's the reason that they put Canadians in the draft because of his signing. And they went, oh, that's not fair. There's, a, there's two Canadian teams, and they're the only ones who get to see him. Well, why, that didn't happen until the 90s? Till late 80s, yeah. Wow. And so anyway... Walker goes to the New York Penn League, uh-huh. and Jim Fanning's doing part of that, and Pat Doherty was a manager at Jamestown, mm-hmm. and they can't find a position for this guy. They try him at third base, they try him at first base. He's just a hitter. Mm-hmm. And that's why I always find it amazing that he became such a great outfielder, and such, he, because he was such a great athlete. Yeah. You know, and, and when I was covering the uh, World Series in St. Louis where Walker, his last shot at, uh, at a championship. Yeah. And Scott Rowland said, he is the best teammate I've ever had. And Scott Rowland's a veteran guy, and Scott Rowland would be on that list Wonderful of player. best teammates yeah. that anyone's ever had. And when he said that, I felt that it vindicated my own feeling. And I, you know, I thought, well, maybe I'm prejudiced and biased because I was with him for mm-hmm. so many years. But to hear Scott Rowland say that, for whom I had... The ultimate respect. That was a tremendous thing to hear about Larry Walker, and and it's funny how, you know, the numbers are translate in some ways, in many ways, to Hall of Fame numbers. But by people, the events that he's good enough to be, Hall people of Fame. go, oh, well, Colorado yeah. played at Mile High and whatever. Yeah, he, he's a one of my favorite players and one of my favorite people too. He was, my, I mean, Reigns was my initial favorite player, but when Walker came up, and people who know my craziness know this, but. He was became the next generation best, my favorite player. Go ahead. And then the thing about Walker is that he had the misfortune of being the first great Canadian player in a province that wanted to separate from Canada at the time. Yes. So very that, that was unfortunate. But and they would boo the national anthem, the Canadian national anthem at Montreal Expos games in the you know early to mid nineties. Well, this is a story that relates to that. Yes. But, go ahead. But it was St. Jean-Baptiste Day, and marketing had sold the entire upper deck to the St. Jean-Baptiste Society, wow. and they were going to finish their parade at home plate. So St. Jean-Baptiste, for people who are listening who don't know this, it is a holiday in Quebec, and it is meant there's a little bit of like nationalism involved. This June, is the idea June is, 24th. June 24th. The idea is to celebrate the heritage of... I don't want to say pure land, but it's definitely a certain kind of hometown, Quebec province kind of thing. And, you know, you get used to it if you're Anglo or Franco or whatever, but it can be contentious. Yeah, it's populated by separatist feelings about getting nine provinces plus the country of Quebec. That's correct. And there was a referendum in 1995, and the country very nearly separate. So Walker, unfortunately, comes to Montreal at a time when this this is boiling over. Yes, it is. And marketing department 
I, I would say God bless them, but I don't because I didn't appreciate this, sold the entire upper deck at Olympic Stadium to the St. Jean-Baptiste Society, and they were going to finish their parade at home playing. Mm-hmm. But the only stipulation was that there was no Canadian national anthem played that night. And marketing went along with it. What? They didn't play the Canadian national anthem? Here's the deal. We're out for early, early BP at 3 in the afternoon, and Walker's leaning on the cage. I'm leaning on the cage talking to him. All of a sudden, they're playing the Canadian national anthem at 3 in the afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) So they could check it off the list. And, And, like, Walker's going... What the? <laughs> and I explained to them about they sold this and that, and they they sort of snuck through. Nobody noticed that the anthem wasn't played before the game. Wow. So I and this is where the difference between PR guys now and PR guys back then. Yeah, I, I told certain of our media, I said, you should go ask Larry Walker about the anthem. <laughs> and they went to, to f with Walker, basically. I, Walker knew I was going to do it because he wanted okay, to. Okay. He wanted to talk about. Oh, he did. Okay, all right. Yeah, so I went and told some uh, some Anglophone, mostly media members, and they went and talked to him. It was a big story. Yeah, and then that sort of made Walker more popular with some, less popular with others, but it also made him less popular with the marketing department and the front office, and that's sort of in the in the wheelhouse of when he fell out of favor with uh, guys like Kevin Malone and, and, and Dan Duquette and those guys as general managers. Huh. And, because uh, he was too vocal? Yeah, he was too vocal. Huh. And, and he he liked to poke him with a stick and be even more vocal. If they said you're too vocal, he would become more vocal. Well, his nickname was Booger. He was the guy who would, like, I mean, if we're going to be slightly off-color, he would, like, hold somebody's head in the hot tub and, like, Pass gas and like just kind of bug people. Like he was an agitator, right? I, I Not think, a bad way. Yeah, no, I, I think the biggest aspect of Booger was that he could burp the national anthem and you would, could understand it. Yes. And that was one of, that was my, my older boy who's now 32 and managing Guelph University. <laughs> that was the thing that fascinated him about Larry Walker. Larry burped the national anthem for my son Matthew. At spring training. Wow. And to this day, he'll talk about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Larry Walker burped the national anthem. <laughs> or not the national anthem, the alphabet. Yeah. A, oh, the alphabet. A, okay. to, Z, A yeah. to Z. Yeah. And uh, and that was tremendous, is is in my son's mind. And that was the booger uh, more than more than any of the other stuff. He was an agitator. Yeah. But he was a great teammate and a great friend to People everybody in that clubhouse. Wow. That's great stuff. So I also want to ask you about, just in the era, half, half an era before that, about the Gary Carter thing. And uh, Carter's no longer around. We don't speak ill of people. We're not around and so forth. But I always found that interesting as an outsider because once, you know, I got older and became aware of all this stuff, Carter was the fan favorite of all fan favorites. I'm not sure that there was any player who was more popular with his team than Carter was right in that era, 79 to 82. I mean, like, a god. Swarm. Autographs. Smiling, this, that, the other, and there was a disconnect because he would get paid more than play. I mean, there were a couple players in particular who were as good as he was, and they're both in the Hall of Fame now. And he would get much more attention, he would get much more positive attention. And he, uh, they gave him this nickname, Lights. All oh, the lights come on, there goes Gary Carter. From a fan perspective, you're like, great. Why would I not want the Gretzky of my team, the Michael Jordan of my team on camera? And from the teammates' perspective, they're like, that guy. How did you perceive it? Was there a real schism in the clubhouse about it? Well, at the time, and this is going to take like a a period of about 
15 years to explain. Okay. But in those early years when he came up, he was a kid. That was his nickname. Yes. He was a kid. I mean, they, they played tricks on him, like at spring training. Uh, he would see a McDonald's on a road trip on the bus, and he'd want to go get a burger, and then the other guys would say, let's go. And the bus would leave, and Gary would be there with his two bags. And, and <laughs> He's a future was, Hall of Famer. Oh, yeah, yeah. future Hall of Famer. Yeah. But the thing is that, that the lights thing, I mean, he was unaware of what he was doing. He was trying so hard to be one of the guys. yeah. Uh, you know, and he's from Culver City, and he's like a mid, middle-class kid. And, and quite Christian yeah, and observant. Yeah, absolutely. And very clean, straight arrow, yeah. especially by standards of that era. So some of the stuff that he did, he didn't know was rubbing his teammates the wrong way. Right. Like, uh, you know, I should let you know that the first million-dollar player for the Expos was Andre Dawson. It was not Gary Carter. Right. Da- Carter got that, when he got the 10-year contract, that's when people right. freaked out. But Dawson, but, got, and Dawson was great and got paid, but, but you're right. But Gary Carter got all the endorsements, got all the, yeah. the, the advertising money, got all the local pub. He lived there all, all year round with Sandy yeah. and the kids. And so, yeah, he was a god. He was a hero with the fans. But it seemed like everything he tried rubbed players the wrong way. Mm. There was one time... Uh, Overnight, I was downstairs after the game. Everybody left. And these guys from Penman's come in, and that was one of Gary's deals. And they got they had cheap plastic chairs in front of every locker. And so Gary had a deal where everyone got a director's chair with the, with the nice comfortable seat in the back, the, the blue back, and, a, and, and you know, it, there were no names on them because they were interchangeable. Yeah. The only thing is that Gary's seat was red and everybody else's was blue and his had his name on the back. And the players went, oh, great, we got seats. Lights has his uh, his red one so everybody knows who got the seat. Doug Flynn's really pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody pissed off. <laughs> and, um, and it was that sort of thing. And, and, and when he found out that there was a, a feedback on that, a negative feedback on his gesture yeah it it took him it hurt him it hurt him deeply yeah and you know there there's other stuff like um i mean people don't know that he had like eight flap tears of his knee that he played through mm-hmm. and he'd have to manipulate it with his fingers just to get in the game oh so there was a uh there was a um double header and he was asked to catch the second game of the double header and charlie lee was pitching mm-hmm and so he went, and he's in the clubhouse, and he's going, I don't want to catch. You know, I caught the first game, my knee's hurting. Second game, Charlie Lee pitches a no-hitter. Yes. And, of course, the clubhouse doors open up, all the media comes in, and they head right to Gary's locker because Charlie's getting some treatment in the back. And the rest of the team's watching as Gary's talking about you know, how he loved catching both ends of the double <laughs> <laughs> And he knew that Charlie had his good stuff today and all yeah. that stuff. And, and here's where you leap forward, you jump forward to after Gary Carter's retired. He's, he's yes. won a championship with the Mets. He's retired. And he gets together with teammates, exposed teammates, mm-hmm. and they realize that Gary Carter has not changed. He's still the kid. He's still the same guy. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time that guys like Warren Cromartie, Dawson Reigns realized why were we mad at this guy? This is who he is. This is who he is. This is what he is. 
And he became one of the guys only after his career was over mm. because of the fact that he had never changed. He was still a kid, still said some silly stuff like, when uh, Carlton Fisk was about to be voted into the Hall of Fame and Gary had been on the ballot already for four or five years, mm -hmm. I talked to him on the phone. I said, Gary, last couple of years, you've been not very gracious when you haven't been voted into the Hall of Fame. I know you're a Hall of Famer. There's a lot of voters. There's, there's like 70 per 65, 70% of the voters know you're a Hall of Famer. So be more gracious. Carlton Fisk will probably go in this year. Mm -hmm. Be gracious when he goes in. And so Cotton Fitz got voted in, and I'm reading quotes, and it's, you know, I should have been in this year, and I, <laughs> you know, I was the National League's Cotton Fisk. I was Johnny Bench's successor, of and he course. was. All those things are true, true. Yeah. but what happened to the be more gracious? You know? Because he was a kid, he was Gary, and we all love him now and then. Yeah. And his teammates understood him after his career was over. So when they talk about what a great guy Gary was, they are telling the absolute truth, but mm -hmm. it took them a while to find out. Yeah. Hey, are you 0-2 in your fantasy league? It's quite possible. This has happened to a lot of people. Uh, I've got a solution for you. How about FanDuel? FanDuel's a great, great way to do it. You can do it week by week, and you don't have to worry necessarily about busted seasons. And uh, you can go to FanDuel.com, click the Join Now button, and use the promo code Jonah. That's J-O-N-A-H. And you will get all kinds of goodies. It's fantasy football for everyday fans. New contest starting every week. Again, no busted seasons. It's something for everyone with lots of contests to choose from. Starts at a buck. Pick a contest. Choose your team. Watch your score real time. More than two and a half million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. New users get free entry into the NFL Sunday Million with more than one million dollars in cash prizes on the line when you make your first deposit on FanDuel. So just visit FanDuel.com. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Sign up with the promo code Jonah today. Thank you to FanDuel for sponsoring the podcast. Jonah. Well, and, and the point about the Expos, and the, maybe there was some acrimony there, much more pronounced on the Mets because the, that was the, one of the biggest groups of ne'er-do-wells that ever lived, the 86 Mets. Here comes this guy, this Christian straight-shooter guy. And you got Dykstra, and you got Strawberry and Goodman, you got, I mean, all these guys. There's all kinds of stuff happening. And when Carter passes away, uh, they interviewed Daryl Strawberry on FAN. And they ask him about, you know, various things, and they ask him about Carter, and he starts crying. And, you know, at first they're thinking that he's crying because, wow, his beloved ex-teammate passed away. He was crying because they treated him like garbage. Because they thought that this guy's like a narc, like who who's this square and whatever, and and Strawberry said he was better than the rest of us. He was a good dude. He was righteous in the good more meaning of the word righteous, and they just didn't see it. And you know, some of them, maybe Cromartie and them, figured it out and they got back together. And some of them, like he passed away, maybe they never got to reconcile. That sucks. And and I just remember driving across at spring training for Gary's memorial service. Yeah. In uh, North Palm Beach. Yeah. And just being amazed not only at the number of people that showed up, but the different proportion of former Expo teammates that were there. To former Mets teammates, and the, the Expo teammates triple the number of wow. Mets teammates. And Port St. Lucie's right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I sort of felt good about that, you know? There was something formative about it for sure. So, 90, 
five, four, five was your, what was your last year? Um, the strike happened yes. in 94, August 11th, 94. We were in the clubhouse in Pittsburgh. We had a meeting before a game with the Pirates. Kevin Malone, Felipe, telling the boys, hang by your phone, stay in shape. We're going to be back in yeah, a couple of weeks. Yeah, that was the feeling. Uh, we will be back. And so that was, I was there as the PR guy. Then as the winter went along, as the winter of baseball winter, <laughs> as the baseball winter went along yes. after the World Series, uh, they they had me, I was already doing games on radio. Yep. I, I think I did 35 a year on radio, color guy, and doing play-by-play also. Very unusual, by the way, for a PR. I mean, that was not... Still not a thing, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Especially since I was still doing the PR stuff. <laughs> you know? I guess that could be perceived as a conflict of interest, yeah, but, I suppose. But I was entertaining. <laughs> That's good. But, so after the, after the season, they had me going in, or during the strike, actually, they had me going in and doing a talk show. Because yeah. I did a talk show from, till midnight after home games that last season, the uh-huh. last two seasons. And I still owe a bunch of players... Uh, Parting gifts. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which I never got. Though. Where's your Longines Whitnauer or whatever of the game? So it was during the strike, and Claude Brochu was uh, was trying to downplay, and, and he was trying to keep staff on, but he laid off the traveling secretary, yeah, Eric Osling, who lived next to me in Point Claire. And uh, I had got him the job. He was my neighbor, and he needed a job, and, and he worked his way up. He worked hard and did that. So they lay him off. And they want me to do the traveling secretary and the PR. Mm. And they said, well, you still do the broadcast. You got young kids at this point, too. Well, yeah. yeah. And they said, well, you still do the talk show till midnight. And they said that, uh, they said, they said that, uh, talk show till midnight, traveling secretary, that's enough. And they weren't going to give me any more money. Wow. So I would be taking money out of the pocket of yep. the traveling secretary and a broadcaster. Mm-hmm. And doing all this work and getting no extra money. So the challenge was there. He had a meeting. Brochu had a meeting with the staff, the remaining staff, and said, I hear there's some discontent in this front office. And I'll have you know that you still get free coffee. You get a parking space. And you have a job. And unemployment in Quebec is at 19.5%. And everybody looked at each other and went, Free coffee. Wow. <laughs> I never thought about it like that. I'm in. <laughs> so that was when I sort of started looking around and, yeah. and, and the stars, uh, column, baseball column, this job opened up. Dave Perkins had been doing it. Went Perkins, for people don't know, quite a very accomplished Canadian journalist. And, and he was the baseball columnist yeah. during the 92 93 World Series years, mm-hmm. 94 for the strike year. Then he went on to be the sports editor, so he was hiring his own replacement. Yeah. And so Michael Farber recommended me. Uh, so that's yeah. a, if, that, if you have that as a recommendation, you got uh, nobody better. You moved to the front of the line. You know, sure they did. wanted Mike, but he was happy where he was. That's I. That's yeah. Right, yeah. And in Quebec with his uh, French Canadian wife. Uh-huh. But that was basically my last year and why I left. It's not, and, and people thought, well, you're, you're bailing out because there was a referendum later that year. It was in 95. Yeah. And, uh, no, I wasn't bailing out. I was being challenged. And, and in fact, Claudine Cook, who now works for, uh, the Lou Gehrig Society in, in Montreal, in mm-hmm. Quebec, she runs it. 
she quit the same day I did. She went in to Claude Brochu's office late January of 95 during the strike. And she went in, I, unbeknownst to me, she went in and, and quit. And Claude Brochu said, Claudine, we'd love you to stay. What would it take to get you to stay? We really want you to stay. We'll give you more money. We'll give you more responsibility. So she comes in and sits in my office and she goes, that was the toughest thing I've ever done. I just quit. I said, really? I'm going in right now to quit. So I wander in and Claude stands up and says, shakes my hand. He says, very good decision. That's a good company. You can pack your stuff and go. (laughs) I went, Oh, I was expecting something else. Yeah, there was no love sonnets. There was nothing there. There was nothing. uh, There was nothing left for me to do there. And uh, I had priced myself out of that position. They just wanted somebody. And I'm not, you know, P.J. Layolo came in, who's now with the Marlins as a vice president. He had been with the Ottawa um, Lynx. Lynx. Mm -hmm. And he just moved in and took over, but at a much lower cost to the expos yeah i think that had a lot to do with it too so i i'm still a patriot but a canadian patriot uh yeah well you're definitely an expos patriot uh, considering the events of uh, tim rain's induction weekend where we all had a lovely time uh lovely time i want to wrap one more bow around the expo stuff which is for people who maybe they're a little younger maybe they were a fan of chicago lights or whatever it is they don't quite realize how good were the 94 expos oh the 94 Expos, it, the pitching staff. Which doesn't get talked about as much. I feel like it's a lot of it is the outfield, the Walker, yeah, Grissom, yeah. and the Luther. I mean, the bullpen had maybe four guys who were closers at the time or went on to be yeah, major yeah. league closers. Shaw, successful major yeah. league closers. Rojas, yeah. Uh, John Wetland was classic. Killer. And the next year he was the MVP of the World Series for the Yankees. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was a deep, strong bullpen. The rotation had great balance between lefties and righties. Pedro was who would all go, Yeah, who would <laughs> all go six, seven, eight, yeah. nine innings. And then the bullpen was so deep, they handed it off to them. But the highlight of that team, that team's offense was built around the outfield. Yes. I mean, you look at those numbers through 108, 110 games. Those are full-season numbers for Marquise Grissom. Moises and uh, Larry Walker. Those are full season numbers. And, you know, there was just offense everywhere. And these guys had pulled away from the Atlanta Braves. And that's why in 15, 20, 22 years writing, I've never mentioned that the Atlanta Braves won so many division titles. It's not correct. It is not true. That's right. And, listening? <laughs> and the thing the thing is that that team was pulling away. That team was great. That team was deep. That team had offense, speed, defense, and most of all, deep, deep pitching. Yeah. And, and you know, I talk to uh, Steve Rogers uh, every April when he comes back and every spring when mm-hmm. he goes around with the – he works for uh, the Players Association now as an executive there. And we talk about it, and – he believes that the 80, not necessarily the 81, 80, 81, 82, those teams yeah. could play the 94 and beat them. And both those eras, like 79 to yeah, they won 95 79 to 82, and 82 was, uh, 82 was a season where the Cardinals uh, won the division yeah. and won the, uh, won the World Series. But for four years in a row, the team that beat, the Expos won the World Series. Pirates, Phillies, Dodgers, yeah. yeah. And, and 
it was that was an era where you look at the the youth on that on those teams and the pitching staff and the depth of the pitching staff. I think that '94 was great and '93 built into that. Yeah, but that other era was just as good. It's interesting too. I mean, I don't want to go too far down the weeds, but the the theory that I put forth in my book was it really came down to understanding the little things. Now, if you look at the Dodgers, for instance, this year, they're wonderful. Kershaw is wonderful. They're star Seager and Bellinger and all that. The Dodgers have no weaknesses. They could put in this kid Chris Taylor, and he's the best left fielder in the league. Their sixth reliever is really good. They've done a really good job of that. I don't know if baseball in general had quite figured out. This is a very like analytical. Like, I need to be on point with this platoon. This backup shortstop needs to be this. Those teams failed in the late nineties, late seventies, and early eighties. Yeah, it was circumstance. They lost to so and so. They would skimp. They wouldn't have a good shortstop one year. They wouldn't have. They just were missing stuff. The '94 team was missing nothing. You know, your platooning Cliff Floyd with Randy Milligan, who's hitting home runs off the lefties. Lenny Webster is coming in and doing things. Again, their fifth best reliever is really good. That was just a very. It felt like the 2016 Cubs. It felt like the 2017 Dodgers, where they just made sure that everything was on point. Yeah, and, and to your point, and agreeing with it. Yeah. In, in hindsight, I look back, and one of my favorite stats about those teams of 79 to 82 yeah. of the Expos was that 79 team. And the 79 team had great frontline players. Yes. I mean, you had... All famers. Yeah, in 78, the outfield assists were 28, 22, and 15 oh. with, with Cromartie, Valentine, and Dawson yeah. in center field. Yeah. They had 62 outfield assists among <laughs> yeah. three guys. So in 79, to your point of, of depth and, and having a weakness here and there, the 79 Expos had one 15-day disablement all season. Mm. Chris Spire, they used the All-Star break. They disabled Chris Spire on July the 4th. He missed the All-Star break of three days, came back. The only player, pitcher, position player, wow. anybody that was on the deal, one player, 15 days. Now you look at these Blue Jays or any team, Mm-hmm. In Major League Baseball, and especially with the ten day deal, which yeah, is a travesty, it know? is. <laughs> and, and you you got like twenty twenty five guys over the course of the year going to be on the DL, and like shouldn't these guys be better because of the training techniques and the shouldn't these guys be healthier? And the other thing is, back in those days, guys would throw seven eight nine innings, and now with peak performance guys. They're throwing like six and looking to the bullpen and yeah. six and seven. And I hate to sound like an old fart, but they should be better. They should be going deeper. They should be ready to go 12. Yeah, but they're going full tilt in the first inning, which you didn't do back in. I mean, I, you know, one of the seminal baseball books was written by freaking Christy Matthewson 100 years ago. And it's like, I'm going to sail through. And it was easier back then because you didn't have second base and you could bop 40 home runs. But I'm going to pace myself or whatever. Marcus Stroman is not pacing himself. He's, first of all, the... Hitters is going to face in the first inning are, are murderers, killers. There's no more 140-pound infielders anymore. And secondly, that's just what you've been told. And, and, and I mean, I agree with your point. But if you know that you have five Andrew Millers in the bullpen, too, why are you trying to get cute? Just, well, that's it. The, the stats say the third time through the order is a big penalty, so don't even bother with the third time well, through the order, I guess. But I, I, love, I love National League Baseball because of the use of the benches. Yeah. So all they have to do is, and I thought for sure someone would address it during this last negotiation, but they have to expand 
rosters. If you're going to carry, yeah, you don't have any good pitch hitters anymore. If you're going to carry 12, 13 pitchers, yeah. and you got to go back to having guys off the bench that can actually do something. We don't have Lenny Harris. We don't have Wallace Johnson. Yeah, Those guys having, don't exist. Absolutely. Instead of having a backup catcher and one infielder and one outfielder, that makes no sense because you're never pinch hitting. You're never when the when the uh, Blue Jays played at Wrigley Field. Yeah, that's the most joy I felt watching a series. In a long, long time. Yeah. The progression of Toronto sports I find interesting, too. And and obviously, I focus more on baseball than hockey. But even that series, that Jays Cup series, because we knew the Jays fans traveled to Seattle because the Vancouver thing and Jays are now Canada's team or whatever. They were allowed at Wrigley Field. Wrigley Field, the bastion, you know, great Cubs fans are fantastic. I mean, you could hear the Blue Jays fans is that all from the last couple of years, this resurgence of the team, or have Jays fans been particularly resonant or travel well or whatever? Because it's cool. It's cool to watch. Yeah, and in fact, players that were there, even uh, Blue Jays players and Cubs players, yeah. felt like it was a louder crowd than when St. Louis comes in, which tells you a lot about... Wow, because that's the rivalry. Yeah, that's yeah. the rivalry. But, but I think, I mean, I know that... The July 31st trade deadline in 2015 made a huge difference. But I feel like when Paul Beeson brought back the, the old blue, oh. the colors, and, and then all of these younger fans, this younger generation of fans that had been, uh, during the Paul Godfrey and Gord Ash years, had been weaned on black uniforms, black and silver. Yeah. and These are the Blue Jays. And so when Beeson brought back those uniforms... And the team started to play well. All of a sudden, there was a whole group of, I don't know what year the millennials start, but they travel well. No. They have excess money to spend. They love their sport. Yeah. And they love going, being obnoxious in other cities. Cleveland, Detroit. Absolutely. Seattle, Go for it. Chicago. Yeah. They were there at 8. When I got to the ballpark at 8.45, they were all waiting, and there was a portable bar outside, and they were waiting for the bar to open. Amazing! <laughs> and they were all wearing their blue swag yeah, yeah. and stuff. And I think that that's the huge part of it, and that's why I don't think that this Blue Jays front office can afford to let this thing slip for two years where they're going to yeah. go into a partial rebuild and come back with Bo Bichette and come back with Vlad Jr. Yeah, I don't think they can do that. They've been painted into a corner by these millennial Crowds that go and take over Wrigley. They're never one attendance two years take in a row. Over Fenway, yeah, yeah. And, and it's a it's a great thing. But this team isn't that far off. I mean, it's not like you're rebuilding from sixty five wins. No, these guys are probably going to finish the year with 75, 76 wins. And they got horribly injured. Sanchez yeah. didn't pitch all year. It was yeah. a bad year. In fact, the next player that comes up to the Blue Jays, which might be on real soon, yeah. Is going to give them fifty-five for the season, which ties their club record. And we're, you know, September. Yeah, not September a good is when you. September is when you bring all these guys in normally. Right. Do you think that means they get Josh Donaldson two hundred twenty-five million dollars and they just don't even think about it? Like, ah, whatever. We just yeah, we have to do it. I don't think they will. But then, how are they going to thread the needle that they, they want? They didn't do it with David Price. Right. Well, he's a pitcher. Uh, yeah, but also, you know, they would have they would have made the effort with Alex Anthopoulos as GM. Yes. Because he had made that deal thinking, yes. well, I'll, I'll try and re-sign him and make it worthwhile. But this, uh, the Cleveland group was brought in to replicate Cleveland's game plan. And I don't think that includes having a guy like Josh Donaldson making that much money into the future. Uh, and 
you know, they might let him play out his contract, but I think they're going to really explore in the uh, in the upcoming offseason finding a great package for him. Yeah, and I mean... But it doesn't mean they can't win 85 games if they trade him. Sure. It, re- it depends on other guys bouncing right. back, Sanchez and Stroman, all that stuff. Yeah. But it just, it, it makes it difficult, that degree of difficulty, because, and I've written, I mean, as an outsider, I'm trying to write about it for Sportsman and the Athletic, about... Forget about the Jays for a second. The general idea of how do you achieve success. And the Yankees, you'll notice in this era, never rebuilt. They had a really good year in like 13 or whatever it was. And then they kind of came down. But they never rebuilt. And then Sanchez and Judge emerged out of, you know, like rising from the ashes. And then they were just really good again. And they had that luxury. And the Jays are a large market. And there's a lot of expectations. And they always say, well, you can't expect to rebuild in New York. Maybe you can't expect to rebuild in Toronto anymore either. Well, the, the thing about the Yankee rebuild, when they traded away people at the 2016 deadline, yeah. was that their farm system, they knew their farm system was ready to throw five or six key players into the mix. Yeah. And the Jays' farm system isn't ready to throw five or six people Light into the mix. A lot of the ball, yeah. And, and, you know, they've got Lourdes Guriel, who's on a major league contract. The Cuban, Not hitting He's 24, much. 25. Yeah. He was hurt. He's playing at New Hampshire now, so that's a short yeah, jump. Yeah, so all for they'll, they'll bring him into spring training. Twenty-five years old and and played at the Cuban upper levels, even though it wasn't like as a regular. Um, and they've got Anthony Alford, so they've only got two guys and none of their pitchers. They've got a a pack of high draft pick pitchers at Double A who are all having mediocre seasons mm-hmm. at the same time. It's a mediocre rotation of number one over no, number one picks for the Blue Jays. Yeah, and they traded Hoffman, they traded Norris, they traded Boyd, which was. Fine. Yeah. Too low price. Great. All the stuff is great. You don't have any regrets, but it's just sort of a uh, a tough situation. So, I mean, as, you know, more broadly, as somebody who came up in the Montreal sphere, Montreal fandom, witnessed the Habs, I mean, it was part of your own DNA, of course, and you come to Toronto, the interest in the Jays, the growing interest in the Raptors, which is awesome. This doesn't feel like, oh, what a hockey team. It doesn't feel like we're in Green Bay anymore where it's a one sport situation and there's some other stuff going on. It feels like Toronto sports fans are just rabid sports fans who want to get into it. I, I have to imagine that somebody, obviously you're writing about the X's and O's too, but that's got to be a pretty cool backdrop to witness that because it doesn't feel like it was there other than the Leafs, you know, just a few years ago. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, the Raptors came in and, and then came on and, and you know, the, there, there's a hugely diverse population in Toronto that has allowed the Raptors uh, fan base in the stadium to really excel and be rowdy yeah. and, and the talk of the NBA. Uh, baseball and hockey, I feel, I mean, my feeling here in Toronto is that the, the belief that Toronto is only a hockey town comes from the fact that all of these media members were hockey guys. Yeah. And now they come in and they just want to talk hockey on radio, on TV. And so you could say, you could make a case that the Toronto media is a hockey media. Mm-hmm. But I'm not so sure because... Especially the younger generation. They oh, might have grown up playing basketball and they might yeah. be black, brown, whatever. And, like and, a different background, different this, that. And there's very, very smart baseball fan base in Toronto. I mean, they know a lot. Oh, big time. Yeah, they know a lot more Going to these me. events, these pitch talks events and yeah, stuff like that, yeah. and that, that whole, I very affectionately call it the uh, 
the Andrew Stoughton Mafia. You know what I mean? Just yeah. like the real literate bloggers and the readers, and it's really interesting. And, and whenever there's an online poll, even on the MLB Network, and, and they have to stream yeah. here, Canadians vote like crazy. You know, you look at Josh Donaldson getting the top vote total in the All-Star game. You look at Bautista doing it two years. Yeah. Canadian fans love their baseball, know their baseball, yeah. coast to coast, obviously, because you go to Seattle, you go to Wrigley Field, you go to Fenway Park, the Maritimers invade, you know? And, and yeah, it's, you can't just say it's a hockey town anymore. And, and, you know, I saw one guy with a, a Maple Leafs hat and it had all these years on one side and, and it stopped at 67 and I said, the other ones are on the other side, right? <laughs> and he didn't think that was very funny. But, but yeah, no, it's 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 tremendous baseball country. Yeah, and it's a tremendous basketball market here. It really is, and it's nice to see that. And and soccer, you look at TFC. Yeah. TFC is having the greatest year they've ever had, maybe of any team in that league. Yeah, and for years they took it on the chin. Now they're the same thing. There, there's a huge fan base following them. And, you know, it's nice to see Toronto as a hotbed for sports and a large market rather than just a, a medium to small market as they tried to sell themselves just not, not that many years ago. Right. It never matched the demographics nor the wealth of the city, but this is a booming metropolis. It might be the most diverse city in North America. I mean, it's up there with New York in terms of diversity. It's just unbelievable and, and really cool to witness from a uh, sports um, point of view. And I like the fact, by the way, that they didn't need Roger Savard the ballot boxes for J.D. and Batista. When I started talking about the computer voting, yeah. that's the first time I went to God bless you, Roger. Uh, so one last question, Richard, to do the end of every podcast is I always ask the guests for a like tip, a nugget of wisdom. Uh, I meet you at a bar. I have met you at bars before. And, and uh, we start chatting, and I say, I'm Joan, I'm all about this. And, and you say that you are all about this. And it doesn't have to be serious or inspirational or tear-jerking. It could be something silly, it could be something little, it could be part of your daily routine, but it's just quintessentially a rich thing. Uh, well, it begins with, what if you lose? I like that very much. And then it goes on to family, and you know, I, there's nothing better than having kids, and I brought my boys up to be baseball, sports fans. My two grandsons, uh, he goes he runs the gamut, every sport, he's playing every sport. Don't be a one-trick pony, experience everything there is to to life, and treat people well. I like it very much. Uh, Rich Griffin, thank you so much for your time. We'll read you at the Toronto Star and your occasionally acerbic but always amusing takes as well on social media. So I look forward to that. Thanks, Joe.